This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's... Welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now band at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I was almost late for the program. I, I my, In my office is a clock that just keeps changing times by itself. It's one of those atomic clocks. And I've been an hour off it just went backwards an hour uh, sometime today, and I didn't really even notice it. So I'm here, and I made it on time. Tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be opening a brand new book, teaching in the book of Colossians. I'm going to do only the first six verses tonight, sort of an introduction to Colossians. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, and... I can't wait to get through it. Some really meaty stuff in there. And then on um, Sunday, I'm going to be teaching, finishing chapter 18 in the book of Acts. So that's what's going on here. Wherever it is that you're going to church, be sure that you offer your body as a living sacrifice. Get up in the morning and say, okay, Lord, divine appointments, I know they're there. How can I be a blessing to other people? And as I tell you often on this show, that will change your whole perspective of Sundays when God is using you to minister to others instead of expecting to be ministered to. But he's using you, sort of like calling you out of the bullpen to get in the game, get off the bench and get in the game. It changes everything. And that's what I know God wants for all of you. Have a wonderful weekend in church. And maybe together we can all pray that somebody, lots of somebodies will get saved today. And maybe, just maybe, the last Gentile will give his or her heart to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus will take us to be out of here with him. That would be a great, great weekend. Well, while we're waiting for any phone calls today, the phones have been a little bit quiet this week. Uh, Let's just deal with some of the questions that have been sent in. Thomas asked, Pastor Ron, are the near-death experiences, experience books legitimate, especially the visions of heaven? Thomas, none of those books are legitimate. And by legitimate, I mean they're not real in the sense that um, somebody didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Somebody didn't see their life flash in front of them. They didn't get a picture of heaven. They didn't get introduced directly to Jesus. All of these things that we read about are, are made up. Uh, I, I can't judge motives. I don't know why people would do it. I don't think anybody sets out to, to write a book full of lies um, or just to make money. Uh, but the reality is that Paul, when he was taken to heaven, and remember, the Bible is our guide for all things, determining is this real or is it phony. The Apostle Paul, we know he went to heaven he said in Second Corinthians chapter 12, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Now, that doesn't mean there are three heavens. It just means differentiating between the sky that we would look up and see, outer space, and then the throne of God, which is above all of that. And he said, I saw things there, inexpressible things, things that man is not 
permitted to tell. And that's the best translation of that passage. And so, uh, Thomas, excuse me, anybody who comes back and says, I was in heaven and I saw all these things, uh, they're not telling you the truth, they're lying, whatever the reason, uh, it was a demonic experience uh, or it was just something they made up but we don't know but we know it wasn't from god so we christians can use discernment and when we see the movies and we see the books in the in the bookstores uh, we can just pass them by if people lose interest then they'll stop writing this nonsense but um, it's it's shameful i think it's shameful thomas as the books themselves are um, the fact that Christians are uh, so, they so lack discernment that they would actually believe those things. So thanks for asking the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here's a question from Emily. She says, can you give me a simple, and then in parentheses, she writes, very Uh, Can you give me a simple explanation of what the gospel is? Emily, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the first three verses, that's the gospel. Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of sins. On the third day, he rose again. That indicates that God accepted him. So the gospel is simply, Jesus came to forgive our sins. He was put to death. And he didn't stay dead. That validates every claim that he made about himself. And over and over and over, Emily, um, Jesus said that he was God in human flesh. So that's as simple as it gets. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 31. uh, I'm sorry, verses 1 through 3. Uh, If if I was to to add anything to that, Emily, uh, it would be that that we, we need to believe that Jesus Christ is coming back again. That's what the Bible teaches from cover to cover. So that's as very simple as I can make it for you, Emily. Thank you for asking. Here's an an interesting question, and and whoever this is, it's an anonymous question. Uh, He or she thinks like I do. Uh, The question is, do we know whatever became of Barabbas? Uh, And the answer to the question is no. There's no secular historical corroboration uh, about the end of Barabbas' life. He just was a figure that... Um, mysteriously showed up. Um, We don't even have any historical or secular evidence corroborating that it was the custom uh, of Pilate to release a Jew or to free a Jew who was uh, sentenced to death. Um, but but we do that. Now, let let me speculate a little bit, and this is why I like to think about these things. The only person that we know that walked away from Jesus after a direct face-to-face encounter was the rich young ruler. And it's so unusual that the Bible went out of its way to say he walked away sad because he had much, or his possessions were great. In other words, he chose his material possessions over and above the relationship that Jesus was asking him to choose. And so given just that one person, and the Bible takes note of it, Barabbas, now think about this, this is amazing to me. Jesus literally died in Barabbas' place. Barabbas, we're told in the the gospel accounts, was an exceptional bad guy, an outstanding bad guy. I don't know how bad you have to be to be exceptional and bad or to be outstanding in your badness, but he was an outstanding bad guy. He deserved it. He led an insurrection. He was guilty of murder, all kinds of things. And he came that same day expecting to be dead. And when the crowd turned and said, Crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas, uh, he was set free. I mean, he literally was the one that Jesus took the place of. And it's hard for me to imagine that he wouldn't have to wrestle with that for a long time. I should be on that cross. I should be the one getting my back ripped open. I should be the one who's hanging on that cross waiting for death to engulf me. And just this is just me speculating. My opinion is no more valuable than anybody else's opinion. But it's hard for me to imagine that the Holy Spirit of God wouldn't have used that to, to, to win Barabbas' heart. 
And I, I kind of hopefully expect to see Barabbas in heaven uh, forever known as the, the, the one human being who in time and space was replaced in death by Jesus Christ. Jesus took his punishment, his brutal beating. And I just, it's hard for me to imagine that after that, Barabbas would have returned to his life of being an outstanding bad guy. So, Anonymous, that's just me purely speculating, and there is no evidence whatsoever to back that up. And I just have fun with those kind of speculations. 340-9585, Gene asks, 1 Corinthians 14 says women should not speak in church. Uh, is that just for them or is it also for now? Uh, in 1 Corinthians, and I think this is something that gets confused a lot, Paul was addressing a local situation, an out-of-order church. And one of the things that was happening, among many other things, Gene, uh, was that the women um, kind of finding their new found voices in, in Jesus Christ after being born again, uh, they were taking advantage of that freedom and they were disrupting church services. They refused to submit to their husbands. Not only was the church out of order, but the marriages in the church were out of order and church services would often denigrate. Back in Corinth, in that culture, men would sit on one side and the women would sit on the other side. And there would be this, there's a word used, I do not permit a woman to speak in church. That word is actually a harangue. And, and they would be yelling over one another. So obviously the church service would be out of order. And there would be no Bible instruction going on. And so Paul is saying in that specific context, I do not permit a woman to speak in the church. Now, a couple of things. Uh, we know that there were women who were prophetesses. Prophetesses couldn't prophesy without speaking, and they did that in the church. Philip's four daughters were prophetesses. Um, um, uh, no doubt Priscilla was a prophetess. Uh, but, but there were others who um, spoke all the time in church. So, so we, we just look at the biblical evidence and we understand that that wasn't a prohibition for all time. As compared to, for instance, Second Timothy chapter two. I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve, where Paul says, "I do not permit a man or a woman to have authority over a man in church, or to teach, or have authority, or even more literally, teaching from a position of authority in the church." In other words, women cannot be pastors, and uh, the the First Timothy passage. Uh, is is hermeneutically backed up by the reference to Genesis. And that Genesis reference means it is a prohibition for all time. It is something the church is supposed to continue. No such prohibition happened in 1 Corinthians 14. So that's what we need to understand. It was just for that church. It was an out-of-control church. The, the men and the women were both equally at fault, equally out of control. And uh, so uh, Paul is saying, you know, be quiet. If you've got questions, ask your husband at home, deal with it there. But to disrupt the, the church service is not the thing to do. So, uh, Gene, women can speak in church. Uh, they ought to. I'm glad they can. They have a lot to say. God has given them wonderful gifts, and we need to listen. Thank you, Gene. I appreciate the question. Anonymous asks, in Mark chapter 16, there's a reference to snakes and not being harmed by them. Is that why some churches practice snake handling? Uh, no, Anonymous, that's not why they practice snake handling. They, act, they practice snake handling because they're being foolish. You know, the numbers of churches practice snake handling are, are infinitely small. Uh, and yet there's always these crazies uh, that people will point to as, 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 as saying, see, you Christians are crazy. You don't know what you're doing. Uh, very, 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 very few churches do that kind of stuff. And what they were doing uh, very simply is um, um, they were, because that passage occurs at the end of the Gospel of Mark, um, they were saying, if you have real faith and snakes won't harm you and you could pick them up. And, and of course, that's just nonsense. Um, 
anybody that could legitimately look at a passage of Scripture like that and think that there's any justification for doing that, putting people in danger. They know nothing at all about God. Now, people wonder, is that passage in Mark chapter 16, does it belong? Uh, It's not in some of the earliest transcripts or manuscripts. And so there's people that just disqualify and say it's silly. But I think not only does it belong there, but I think it's prophetic. We remember that in the book of Acts, certainly after Jesus said this, uh, the apostle Paul was bitten by a snake on the island of Malta. It fastened onto him. Everybody expected that he was going to drop dead, and he just shook it off back into the fire. So, so I just think that was prophetic. I think that was Jesus saying these kinds of things are going to happen. And I don't know of any other historical reference where somebody was uh, bitten by a snake but not harmed by it. I think it was just a a prophetic announcement uh, when they would have seen the Apostle Paul, those who were with him. They would have remembered Jesus' words here, and they would have known that it was something that um, Paul was fulfilling. So, no. That's not why they handle it. They handle snakes because they're being stupid. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Um, Anthony wants to know. Anthony wants to know. Uh, Jesus said we would do greater works in John chapter fourteen than he did. How is that even possible? Am I missing something? Um, Anthony, I get this question fairly frequently. Uh, of prosperity teachers. Uh, health and wealth gospel teachers, uh, they misuse this, abuse this verse all the time. Jesus wasn't talking about the quality of the miracles. Uh, I don't think he meant that I walked on water so you can walk on water too. Or, or um, um, you know, I, I, could, I could cast out demons uh, so you can just routinely cast out demons. That wasn't, you know, he was talking about the quantity of work. Now, here's, what the reference was, Anthony. Jesus, uh, in his um, ministry, um, after three and a half years, and doing all those miracles, when Jesus was crucified, there were about 120 followers. On the very first day of the church, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, 3,000 men, not counting their wives and children, 3,000 men got saved. That's the greater work that Jesus was talking to. They were talking about. So that's not, uh, you you know, uh, I pulled a gold coin out of a fish's mouth so you can do the same thing. It wasn't that at all. It was simply, uh, there will be much more fruit. That's why he said, I've appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will last, abundant fruit. Uh, and it's it's doing the work that God called us to do far more effectively and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Anthony, that's what he's talking about. So if you're in a church where they're talking about, well, Jesus did this miracle, we can do these kind of miracles, they, they're, they're, that's bad scholarship. They're not understanding what the passage says at all. And the reason they're not understanding it is because they don't want to. They've got an agenda, uh, and it's kind of set before them, and that's exactly uh, what they will, what they will be saying. So, you're not missing anything at all. Uh, but, but believe me, it would, all Jesus had to do was die. What do you say in John chapter 12? Except a kernel of wheat dies and falls to the ground, it will not reproduce. And uh, when Jesus died and went into the ground, believe me, the impact of the gospel spread throughout the world. In tonight's Bible study in Colossians chapter one. Paul is going to say to the Colossians, and interestingly, this is the only church that Paul wrote to where he had never met any of the people. I mean, he had he, he didn't know, know the church in Rome intimately, but he knew a lot of the people there. But in Colossae, when he wrote to them, they, they're the fruit of a man named Epaphras who, who was saved under Paul's ministry. Um, he didn't know the people, that, and the, the, the people there knew very little about him. And he wrote to him, and one of the things he said was he rejoices because all over the world, this gospel is producing fruit. Those are the greater works, Anthony, that uh, Jesus was speaking about in John chapter 14. Great question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. Uh, I've got a question I'm going to take at the on the other side of the break. Uh, that was uh, just sent into the studio about Revelation chapter 12. So just hang tight right after the break. I'll go into that. 
Here is my next question. It is from Rohario. I have a pastor friend of mine whose last name is Rohario. Rohario says, A friend of mine has left a cult and is now trying to navigate their way to being a Christian. How can I help him unlearn everything and start over? Rohirio, I think the key is, is, is making sure they understand that everything they were taught was wrong. Now, the enemy, this is a stronghold. Psychologically, these things have an impact. But the very first thing you've got to do is sit down with somebody and say, let's start fresh. Blank slate, because everything that you've been taught about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's done, about his purpose in life, everything has been wrong. So I think you're on the right track, Rohirio. Uh, Just tell him he's got to unlearn those things. Let's open the Bible with no preconceived ideas about Jesus or about him. Just what does the Bible say about Jesus? And then, like anybody else, you disciple this person. You know, people that leave cults, there's there's a lot of the psychological damage it's done is the fact that the cult disowns them, they excommunicate them, they forbid their people contact with them, and they, they lose friends, uh, and it's, it's, it's very painful. Uh, we have had many, many people over the years come out of cults and cult-like churches uh, where they were told they leave the church, you're leaving your salvation, God has nothing to do with you, God's people will have nothing to do with you. And that's a really bitter pill to swallow. And so they automatically get defensive. And there's always this demonic pull to go backwards because you don't want the people saying or thinking those things about you. And in this particular case, uh, Rohirio, you need to understand and have compassion that it's going to be hard. And every time, but they said, or but, but when I was at this church, you've got to stop them and say, Remember, we're not talking about those things. All of that information was bad. It's misinformation, and it will only be used by the enemy to mess with you. And uh, we've had people, I've had husbands and wives in our church um, where one of the the husband and the wife was able to move on and and just thrive, uh, and the other one struggled and suffered a great deal. So... Um, the idea here is that uh, they really desperately need to understand that everything they have is bad information. And then you just disciple them, counsel them to get in the Word, to write down the questions that they have, and then they're going to take a little bit more time than others to, to really sort of dig in and search out the answers to the questions. But when they find something that's true, and and believe me, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal that to them. God is very kind to people who have been misled. He doesn't like that. And he will reveal himself in ways to them. And so when those kind of revelations happen, we have to rejoice with them and then write it in their brain. Remember this. Don't ever forget it. And unfortunately, it's it's just hard. There's a lot of pain. And yet, I think, Rohirio, that you can really understand um, where they're coming from. So be patient with them. But clean slate, that's what they got to start with, a clean slate. It's hard to get rid of all that baggage, uh, but we have to do it. Here's a question from Lynn. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, what could be lacking in Jesus' sufferings for us? That's where Paul will say, and I won't get to that tonight, but I'll get that probably in the next two weeks. Um, what uh, He's going to fill up in his flesh that which was lacking in Jesus' sufferings for us. It doesn't mean that there was anything deficient about Jesus' sufferings. Um, the, 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 the price of our peace was placed upon him. He was the one who was beaten, and the wrath of God poured out on him. So there's nothing lacking in Jesus' suffering at all. Uh, what Paul is saying is, look, there's still time before Jesus comes. And my job, my, my purpose in life is to do these things um, whatever, whatever the cost, whatever, however I suffer, I'm going to suffer, and I'm willing to suffer, sharing the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings, and I'm, and and 
I'm going to fill up in my flesh those things. And, and all it means, Lynn, is that he's going to continue to suffer uh, until Jesus comes back or until his ministry is over. Now, what's interesting about the Apostle Paul is we know how he died. He was beheaded uh, under the direct order of Caesar Nero. Uh, we also have a record, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, of his immense suffering. And when I say suffering, I mean immense suffering. And all he's saying is that I'm going to keep doing whatever it takes, paying whatever price until Jesus returns or until my race is over. I love, Lynn, that Paul was able to say uh, at the end of his life, I've finished the race. My fight is over. And now there is stored up for me a crown of righteousness. He knew he was finished. And he did fill up in his flesh what was lacking, only to have that mantle picked up by someone else. Good question. Thank you very much. This will probably be the last question for this half of the program. Oliver says, um, Isn't it being naive to count our sufferings and trials as joy, like Jesus, like James rather tells us. Um, Oliver, um, he says, I'm going to use two translations. One, he says, reckon, I reckon. And the other is to consider your trials. It doesn't say they are joyful. I mean, that's not naivety. That, that's silliness. If I, if I would, would go out saying, praise the Lord, I'm being beaten, or praise the Lord, I'm being thrown in jail. Nobody likes that kind of stuff. Nobody in the Bible did those things. But, but we're to consider it. In other words, that which it does not appear to be joyful, we're to consider it pure joy. Because we're sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. We're being made more and more like Jesus every day. And so um, it takes faith. It takes courage. It takes an understanding that, that if Jesus suffered, he said that those of us who follow him will suffer. He was hated, will be hated. He was insulted, will be insulted. And, and the, the, the exhortation here is to count it all joy. And I think we do that by faith. We do that in prayer. I think of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 when they were beaten badly. They were thrown into stocks. The stocks were as painful and torturous as any torture that anyone could suffer. Um, and they decided uh, in what appeared to be their last night on earth, they decided that they were going to sing hymns and praise to God. And that's what they did. And the Lord met them with this uh, supernatural, miraculous delivery. Um, so that's what we're to do. Again, we're not to enjoy them. But there's a difference counting it all joy. Appreciate it. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program our second half of our friday show 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR let's go to scott from san antonio calling on line one scott thank you for calling you're on the air Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Thanks, Scott. I, uh, I called you twice in one week. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, I wanted to thank you for the answer you gave the other day. Um, I hadn't heard it uh, stated that way before. But I, I, I wanted to follow up. Um, I'd always, and we were talking about how uh, Jesus had veiled his deity, just as a reminder, is uh-huh. the way that you expressed that. And I'd, always, I'd heard other pastors um, teach on that. 
and they would say how he he basically hid or bailed his glory. And I always thought, well, when I thought of the glory, I was thinking of like uh, the Mount of Transfiguration or the Shekinah glory, and that kind of made sense to me. But I was just wondering if you could um, elaborate with some scriptures that that uh, that will help us, you know, where where you know how he was, how his deity was veiled, and then how is he? Uh, I guess you said he showed his glory through his miracles. Um, if if there's some scriptures that help, kind of explain or or that I could dig into on that. Yeah, thanks, um, Scott. And I'll listen to you on the air. Thank you. Okay, I can I can do that, Scott. Uh, a couple of things. Um, you know, and, and I'm not able to see well enough to give you the exact verses except for except for the first one I'm going to give you. But but there's all kinds of statements that that um, indicate Jesus veiled his deity. Um, obviously, the, the, the definitive scripture is Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 5, where it says that our mind or our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus who though being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. And so in his carnation, he let equality with God go. He had it. It was his because that's who he is. But he let it go. And he willingly, obediently condescended to walking this earth without the benefit, Scott, of of uh, being able to to see into the future without the benefit of miracles for his own benefit. I mean, when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, it would have been very simple for Jesus uh, to 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 be tempted. Well, turn these stones into bread. I mean, God certainly could have done that, but Jesus, by veiling his deity, was walking this earth the way we are. Now we know there are other places. Um, uh, Jesus said he only did what he saw his father do, only said what he heard his father do. That was uh, uh, indicating that he, he he didn't even walk this earth with any independent motive or any independent thought. Uh, his food, John chapter 4 says, was to do the will of the one who sent him. So so he's, his substance in life was to be obedient. And so those are the passages that talk about the veiled deity, the one that you brought up yesterday or somebody else brought up on another question about Jesus saying that he didn't know the hour or the day uh, of his coming or the kingdom being established. He said, no, that's, that's for the Father. Now, clearly, Jesus knows all of that stuff now, but only while he was walking here on earth, Scott, only while he was walking on earth, uh, did, did those passages apply? So he veiled his deity. To, to say that he veiled his glory, now it's semantics, and some pastors may have meant the same thing. But um, the, the whole idea of Jesus being here was um, not to, to demonstrate his glory. Um, everything he did was for the glory of the Father in heaven, and he made that clear over and over and over again. So Jesus walked this earth wanting only to hear from the Father, wanting to be perfectly obedient. And when he was obedient, then the Father let him know the three separate occasions. Uh, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And of course, the third occasion was the declaration of the empty tomb. So, Scott, that's what um, is in view here. So it's not his glory. Uh, that's why the Mount of Transfiguration is such a big deal, because it was only there for that brief moment where heaven shone from within him to the outside. And, of course, there was a very limited audience that only Peter, James, and John were there besides Jesus when Moses and Elijah came. But but I love the way Mark's gospel, Peter, that's Peter's account, described his clothes were whiter than any bleach in the world could could make them. And uh, that's the only time that his glory shone uh, until, of course, he was raised from the dead. So uh, it's his deity that was veiled. It was his right to be God. I think sometimes, Scott, we diminish what the incarnation meant. Jesus who only moments before was worshipped in heaven by the hosts of the angels, 
suddenly found himself traveling through the womb of a teenage girl being born in abject poverty and living a life. You know, when uh, Jesus was circumcised uh, in in um, the gospel accounts on the eighth day, the, the offering that uh, his parents made were, were just two doves. That was the offering of a very, very poor family. And so uh, Jesus sacrificed it all, the riches of heaven, in exchange for the poverty on earth, just so he could walk with us, so we could relate to him, so we could see the Father through him. One of the beautiful things about the book of Colossians, much like Hebrews, it deals with the supremacy or the superiority of God. And so that, Scott, is, is uh, I think, uh, I hope is hopeful. We have Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I feel like yesterday was last Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading in uh, the Gospel of John a few days ago, and I came across when he washed the disciples' feet, and I wondered if he washed Judas's feet along with everybody else. And the reason I thought that he would have, even though knowing what, Ju- what Judas was going to do, he was still giving him an opportunity to to uh, change and, and to repent. Uh, it's just something I wondered because it says later that he tells Judas to do what he's going to do, but he says that after uh, the after he had washed everybody's feet is what it appears to be. So I just thought I'd get your idea on this. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Cindy. Thanks very, very much. You know, not only did he wash Judas's feet, Judas's filthy feet would have been the first feet that Jesus washed. We know the way they were seated around that table. Um, Judas would have been immediately to Jesus' left. That's sort of the, the, the seat reserved, the, the, the position of honor. And Judas would have been there. Um, John would have been on Jesus' right hand, always sitting next to him, and Peter close to John. So uh, they would have been the last feet that were washed. Peter, of course, the last set of feet altogether. But when Jesus grabbed the bucket and the rag and started washing feet, it would have been Judas's. Now, this is, again, the way my mind thinks, Cindy. I'm personally convinced that the whole time Jesus was washing his feet, he was staring Judas right in the eye. And I think the look was a look that would have said, there's still time, Judas. You don't have to do what you've already agreed to do. Now, obviously, we know it was going to happen. It was prophesied. The devil had already entered Judas at that point. So there was no turning back. But Jesus was still reaching out, giving him an opportunity. It would be shortly after that at the Last Supper where um, um, Jesus would say, one of you is going to betray me this night. And the disciples would say, is it I, Lord? And, And when Judas heard Jesus say that and they made eye contact. Um, they dipped in the bread at the, or in, the, in the, 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 the oil at the same time with their bread. Um, Judas would have looked at him and said, is it I, Lord? What he really meant there was, do you know what I've done to betray you, Lord? And that's when Jesus told him, what, what you do, now go do quickly. And Judas then was dismissed. So when he broke the bread, Judas was there. Uh, when he took the cup, Judas had already been gone. But yes, the very first set of dirty feet that Jesus would have washed were Judas's feet. Thank you for the question, Cindy, very, very much. Here's the question that was sent in uh, anonymously. Can you please explain that? But I'm going to do it quickly because I think I did three weeks of Bible studies on this. I can refer you to... Uh, our website, calvaryessay.com. My notes are are on the website. The notes that I preach from, now I don't preach exactly what the notes say, but as I'm preparing the Bible study, these are the notes. And I have uh, my own commentary on the entire book of Revelation uh, already written and available to anybody who wants to look for free. 
Uh, so Revelation chapter 12 is one of those chapters that people ask about a lot. So get ready. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. One of the things to notice as we get into chapter 12, we can feel the pace of Revelation quicken. Um, from this point forward, things speed up in anticipation of the arrival of Jesus in chapter 19. The time here for Satan is short. He's aware that his defeat is imminent. Um, and so the pace picks up. Now, it starts out in, in chapter 12, verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. In the book of Revelation, we don't have to guess um, what the, the symbols are. Um, the description that follows in chapter 12 is clearly symbolic. It's not literal. It's John trying to write down what he's seeing in the spirit realm, and it's hard, so we can't take it literally. You know, I'll, I'll deal with that. John doesn't see a real woman. He doesn't see a real dragon or a real child. Uh, he sees these things as symbolic representations of other things. This important portion of Scripture, though, wants us to know what's going on. So we're told in this chapter what the first two symbols represent. Verse 9 identifies the dragon as Satan. The child in the story is also identified as Jesus, for no other will ever rule the nations with an iron scepter. And so, since we know what these two symbols are, uh, we can also identify the woman, and there's a whole bunch of bad stuff out there about who this woman really is, uh, but, but this is good. It says, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, the woman is described in celestial images that we've seen before in the Bible. Uh, every symbol in Revelation from the, for the entire book, every symbol is given its meaning somewhere else in Scripture. One of the reasons the book of Revelation has so much value for us is because it sends us to other places in our Bible. Now, who was the woman? There are some, primarily Roman Catholics, who say that the woman... Uh, is Mary. They would say, well, she's the one who gave birth, so it must be her. But that's not what this woman giving birth to Christ symbolizes something bigger. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy, who's the founder of Christian Science, claimed that she was the woman of Revelation chapter 12. There are even some Christians who have really, really messed up eschatology who claim that the woman of Revelation 12 is the church, but none of that is true. Um, remember that Jesus gave birth to the church, not the other way around, so it can't be Mary. The woman here is the nation of Israel from whom the Christ came. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel is often compared to a woman, specifically uh, a woman in the pangs of labor. But we have even more proof uh, from Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37 where he uses exactly the same term, terminology to explain his dream to his parents and to his brothers. And the dream, he says, I had a dream, and this time his father sort of tries to straighten him out, rebuked him. What is this dream you had where your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And, of course, we know that that happened. So the dream was real. It was prophetic, prophetic, but... Uh, it, it, it's, it, it helps us be sure that the identity of the woman is certain. It is Israel. Now, let me speed up a little bit here. Another is the devil, again, verse 9, uh, in chapter 17. Uh, the, the, the meaning of the ten horns and the seven crowns uh, are given to us. Um, the seven heads here represent the seven hills of the city of the false prophet, almost certainly Rome. It's known even today as the city of seven hills. And the ten horns represent the reigning world power at the time of the Antichrist ascension to power. And, and you get more on that in chapter 17. So remember, the devil's not a dragon. This is just another sign that reveals the nature and the character of the dragon. In verse 4, and I had a question about this verse yesterday. 
on the show. It says, His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And this is a reference to the fall of Satan described in Isaiah chapter 14. And when the devil fell from grace, he deceived a third of the angels in heaven um, who, just like humans, had to make a one-time free will choice to serve God. Um, so uh, that's when the the demon, so that she he might devour her child the moment was born. Now, one of the things we know is the devil has always tried to kill babies. Moses should have been put to death, but God spared him. Jesus, of course, was an object of Herod's wrath. Herod, an ancestor, the last ancestor of Esau. Uh, and he ordered the death of all the male babies under two years of age after the Magi came to him asking uh, for information about the Christ. So um, th- this is just, um, that's what the symbol is. Jesus is seen in his birth and his ascension into heaven. Um, and then it goes back down to the end of the time. The woman Israel, remember, fled in her desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. There's another way that we know this woman can't be married. Uh, she couldn't flee in the desert because she's in heaven with Jesus. So this is specific to the Great Tribulation, the second half of the Great Tribulation. So uh, I hope that helps. The rest is Michael and the, and the uh, his angels fought, and this is when um, Satan is cast out of heaven forever. So that's a really short version of it, but there's a whole bunch more, and all of that stuff is available uh, at calvarysa.com. So anonymous, I hope that gives you a little bit of direction, but but the the woman is not Mary. The woman is not the church. The woman certainly wasn't Mary Baker Eddy. The woman was initiated, and I could have gone on and on and on, but I want to respect the questions that have been sent in to us. Matt wants to know, is it possible that God is still giving the devil permission to destroy lives like he did with Job? Well, Matt, because it's a biblical precedent, of course it's possible. Um, that that uh, that that God is giving Satan permission to do what he wants to do, um, but but it's unlikely. Um, you know, I don't I don't think most of us have to worry about our name being brought up in conversation between Satan and God. Uh, but the reality is that uh, that's exactly what happened. Now, one of the things I want to am. Um, when when he says, uh, have you considered my servant, Joe? Where, where have you been? Oh, roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro. He's looking for people to destroy. And it's a military term. God says, you've been checking Job out, haven't you? And 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 so he, he just says, have you considered Job? Of course he's considered Job. God did, but he'll curse you if if I can touch him. And, and God gave him parameters. So he it's not the same um, you know, not God just arbitrarily saying, yeah, go ahead and destroy this person's life. God knows the enemy is going to attack. God tries to equip us, preparing us for those attacks. But the reality is that this is an unusual situation. The only other biblical example we've got of this is Satan or a messenger from Satan being given permission by God. And I think beyond that, I, I just really don't think that the devil is going to be too concerned about our names individually. But it is possible, there is biblical precedent, that um, the angel is at work destroying lives. Uh, I just don't think it's going to be like Job. Thank you for that. Wendy says, oh, Wendy, when I got this question, I thought, well, when I get to it, this is going to be one that... I can take a lot of time with. I don't have a lot of time to do it, but let me do big church as a singles ministry. I don't want to leave my church, but I also would like to meet other singles. What are your thoughts? Wendy, and I can only, I'll give you our perspective, Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. We've done everything that we can possible. Everything that we can not to segregate our church into ministries to specific groups. A singles group in most churches is nothing more than an in-person dating app. Uh, Just like I would tell you, Wendy, if you said, I want to go on an app, I would say, don't do it. Um, um, If you don't want to leave your church, don't leave your church and meet somebody at your church. God knows that you want to meet somebody. 
God knows that it's not good for humans, male or female, to be alone. And God is the one who's put that desire to be with somebody in your heart. So all you have to do to find that person is to follow Jesus. Don't get impatient. Don't take matters into your own hands. And that's what going to a singles group is. For the life of me, I can't understand pastors that have singles groups. I've had people leave our church because I won't have a singles group. Well, we're we're singles and you don't care about the singles. I really do, but I'm going to teach you how to be content in your singleness so God then will be free to bring you somebody. I'm not going to turn this into just want to go to a place where everybody's looking for somebody else and it makes it easier and that's exactly what dating apps are these days. Now, let me spare you the pain of writing to me. I always get people say, but Pastor Ron, I meant the love of my life on a dating app. You're the exception that proves the rule. I can give you dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people whose lives have been destroyed by dating apps and the people that they have enough faith to trust God to bring you a man or woman, depending on your gender, who he has planned for you. And what we need to do is we need to learn to be content with Jesus. Paula always calls Jesus her first husband. And she's been stuck with me for a long time. But Jesus is there's a rebellion in my life. Well, the same thing is true for those of you who are single. We get how hard it is. We really do. But we're not going to be participants in trying to let flesh rule and reign in the selection of somebody. It's just not spiritually a healthy thing to do. I believe with all of my heart it's a lack of faith and I also think that it's demeaning to them go out and try to find their dream man or their dream woman. So Wendy, don't leave the church if you like your church and don't be lured by a big church and a singles ministry they have to offer. Hey, we're done for this week. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ron Arbaugh. I have the privilege of pastoring Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back next week. See you then. Spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4. And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.